Well, open up your copy of God's Word, if you haven't done so already, to Romans 8, 28. And we're going to read verses 26 through 32. Romans 8, 26 through verse 32. Read along with, with me. God's Word says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him graciously all things? And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, as we get ready to look at Romans 8 and study this concept of providence, I want you to turn to Isaiah verse 48, Isaiah chapter 48, not verse 48, Isaiah chapter 48. We'll look at a couple of verses there in a few minutes. Now, do you remember the first flutters of young love? Back in my generation, I think my parents' generation, one of the obvious signs that young love was beginning to take root in a young person's life was when you flipped to the back page of that individual's notebook and you saw scrawled on a young woman's page a new last name followed by her first and her middle name. Or you saw a young man's name followed by a young woman's name with his last name. You see, new favorite words are so often wrapped up in our affections, aren't they? Wrapped up in who we see as the greatest object of desire. Most of us have swapped out that frail blossom of young love for something far better, far deeper, rooted, mature, marital love. No longer is it a new name that is our favorite word, but perhaps the names of our children, or simply retirement, vacation, something like that. Now, some of you are shoppers, and perhaps your favorite word is sale. You see that, and you cannot turn away. You got to go and see what you're going to get, because if you don't get that, you're going to miss out on something amazing. Sports fans, you guys see and hear spring training, playoffs, Stanley Cup, March Madness, and you guys get all excited about what's about to come. You see, we have favorite words, not because of how they sound, but because we enjoy what's behind these words. We anticipate the good in each of them. And so for Christians, far greater than any sale, better than retirement, or even your favorite team winning a championship, I believe that the Christian's favorite word should be providence. Perhaps you thought your favorite word as a Christian should be something like forgiveness. 
Forgiveness gets to your greatest need as you look to God, as you see him as the holy and righteous and omnipotent one, and you recognize that he only allows holy and righteous and perfect people into his presence, and you realize, ha, I am not that, and so therefore you realize that you need forgiveness for your sins. And so you think forgiveness might be my favorite word. Maybe you go a step further and you think, you know what, my favorite word should actually be cross. Because it is on the cross that Jesus died for our sins. It's only through the cross that forgiveness is even possible. And so you look to the cross and you think, that is my favorite word. Because it is all that is wrapped up in the cross. The death of Jesus in our place. The perfect righteousness of Christ then being credited to our account is all wrapped up in an empty cross. Because Jesus died and rose again. And so you think, cross is my favorite word. Is the crosswork of Christ applied to the whole world or just some? So perhaps as you think about your Christian life, you think that your favorite word ought to be faith. Because you know that the only way that the cross of Christ becomes effectual in your life is because you've trusted in Jesus. You've put your faith and trust that that work was sufficient for you. We have many words that we love as Christians. The more we know God, the more we know how God works, the more profoundly we desire to glorify God, and the more words come to mind and, and desire from the desires of our heart. But I think there's a word that would encapsulate all of the blessings that we've already mentioned, and that word is this morning's word. It is providence. See, providence is how God works everything for the purposes that he has in mind. You see, providence is God's sovereignty applied to us. As our catechism says, providence is God working personally and powerfully to guide all of creation to fulfill all God's purposes for his glory and the good of his children. So the death of Christ on the cross comes as a result of God's providential working through all of human history to bring exactly Jesus to the point where he died on that cross. Your humble turning and trusting in Christ alone, your faith that you put in him, that comes as a result of millions and millions of micro-events in your life leading up to the creation of your life to get you to the point where you heard the gospel and believed. See, that is God's providence in action. Forgiveness of sins even is a result of God's providence then in your life to get you to the point of saving faith. Even the fact that you live where and when you do, that you have access to God's word, is a result of God's what? Providence. So really, the starting point of understanding providence must always be the reality that God is sovereign. That he is in control over all things, including evil things. See, to call God sovereign means that he is supreme king over all. We had a coronation yesterday, didn't we? First time in 
60 years, 70 years? Someone who knows the monarchy better than I do will be able to answer that and correct me. But a new king, King Charles, was crowned yesterday, and he sat on a throne. And if you paid attention, you noticed that there was meaning and symbolism in almost every act and the things that he wore, the things that he held. Every single thing was a result of some implied and explicitly stated meaning behind what was going on in the crowning of a new king. And it's weekends like this that remind us that the British monarch at one point ruled over a quarter of the population of the earth. It was the empire on which the sun never sat. And decisions made in Westminster changed the lives of citizens thousands and thousands of miles away. You see, we understand intuitively that such power invested in one person is bound to corrupt and, of course, we're American, so we have this built-in distrust of kings doing whatever they want to for their own pleasure and glory, right? Maybe that's why we naturally recoil when we read passages like Isaiah 48, verse 9. Read down with me, Isaiah 48, verse 9. God says this, For my name's sake... I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, that is punishment, that is things that were done that promoted suffering. And then God says this, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now this might cause some of us to flinch a bit, but why? Why do we react this way? It says God is refining Israel. He is causing suffering and punishment to happen on his people ultimately why for his glory look at the end of verse 11 right for my own sake for my own sake i do it for how should my name be profaned my glory i will not give to another now that feels off to so many of us but if we want to learn and to appreciate providence, we need to grow comfortable with a big God, a sovereign God who is king of kings and lord of lords over all things and all peoples and does absolutely everything for his glory according to his perfect plans. He says, my glory I will not give to And so when suffering comes and we doubt if God is actually sovereign or perhaps more scary, if we doubt he is actually good, it's in those dark moments that we need to grow comfortable resting in God's sovereignty combined with his goodness, working together in perfect harmony, sometimes working in mysterious and strange ways to work all things for his glory and as Romans 8 28 tells us for the good of his children 
And so our big, sovereign, powerful God is also perfectly holy, good, and kind. And it's that vision of God where we see the Christian's favorite word begin to fit in. Providence. Providence is a good God's sovereignty applied. Not just in our life, but in all things. So as we study, perhaps your favorite verse this morning I'm going to turn back to Romans 8.28. We need insight into how God's sovereignty applies in providence. So we'll see four insights into God's providence that humble us when we're tempted to think we're kings and queens of our life. Four insights into providence that comfort us when we're scared and realize that we have very little control of our life. Four insights into providence that help us to be patient in adversity and thankful in prosperity, resting our hope in our Heavenly Father. The first insight into God's providence is that providence is for sufferers. Providence is for sufferers. Providence helps us get how God works things out for good. And so understandably, you might think that providence explains all the blessings in your life, but but not necessarily your sufferings. We're inclined to chalk up sufferings and evil and those things to the devil, or perhaps maybe some impersonal effect of sin. But the most famous verse on providence, Romans 8, 28, comes in the context of suffering, literally that makes us groan. And these sufferings we experience aren't optional sufferings for the Christian. They aren't something that only happens to the worst Christians when they make big, bad mistakes. No, suffering is part of what it means to be a child of God. Look back at Romans 8, 16 and 17. We see this glorious truth. The, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, Romans 8, 16, that we are children of God. Praise be to God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided what? What does it say? That we suffer. Really? God, you didn't mean that, did you? Right, right. So we are children of God, provided that we what? Suffer. Then verse 18 tells us that Paul addresses all the sufferings of this present time. Suffering because you still sin. Suffering because others sin against you. Suffering because of a corrupt world and the persecutions that come. Suffering because of sickness and disease and death. Suffering because of natural disasters of all different kinds. See, all this creation groans because of the suffering. We groan because of suffering. Sometimes we don't even know what we should pray. Look at Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. When we are at our lowest And all we can muster up is a a please help, some sort of helpless groan directed towards God as we lie on the hospital bed too weak to speak, too scared to think about what might happen next. Suffering is real in this life, and it is promised. That's the context of Romans 8.28. 
So when he begins Romans 8.28 with three simple words, and we know, the conjunction and points to what comes before. Speaks of the suffering. And speaks of what the Spirit does in verse 27. Verse 27 says, and God, he who searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And why is it comforting that God the Father knows the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit then prays for us as we suffer, even when we don't know how to pray, even when we're not sure how to pray. He says this, verse 27 continues, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Because of what the Spirit does, this is our great comfort to know that as we suffer, as we groan, God the Holy Spirit perfectly prays for us exactly what God purposes to happen for his glory and our good. And so because the Spirit helps us as we groan, as we don't know what to pray, as we aren't sure if we can pray, so we're reminded, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together. See, Romans 8.28 assures us God's providence is for sufferers. It's a reality designed to comfort us, even as we're struggling. Even when we don't see God actually working in the midst of what, what's going on, how can you use this, God? We can know that God is working in and through our suffering because of Romans 8.28. And so a second insight into God's providence, providence is for sufferers. Number two, providence is certain. Providence is certain. Often when we are young, ignorance is very blissful. Our parents don't tell us what's going on or all the reasoning behind difficult situations and decisions. We're just along for the ride. I love how Charlie Brown accomplishes this, right? Anytime the kid looks up to his mom or dad or a parent or a teacher, all they hear is yes, ma'am, yes, sir. And they go on and live their little day pretending like all is fine. But sometimes, as we grow, ignorance becomes painful. Talking to a friend who was adopted, there was a lot of questions she had about her birth parents. Why did they give me up? What was going on in their life? Was I ever even wanted? How can it be good that I, I never knew my parents? You know what's incredibly helpful in these moments? Is that we don't have to live with those hard questions that ignorance brings up. God's providence isn't just a reason we can hope things will get better, maybe. It isn't just an attempt in finding power in positive thinking, like just if I, if I have a right outlook on life, everything will just be great. That's not what providence is. God's providence is absolutely certain. Look at verse 28. It says, and we know. That word know is the key. 
It breathes out certainty, knowledge that is absolutely sure based on repeated, revealed truth directly from God himself. This isn't a dim truth, a vague mist of a truth. This is fully revealed, thus absolutely certain, knowledge. And what is it that we all, as Christians, should know? Verse 28 continues, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Every last thing, every terrible disease, every untimely death, every child that has ever been born, every child that has ever been conceived, every unexpected blessing, every expected blessing, everything means everything. God promises to work everything out for the good of his children. But what does our good even look like? It's an important question, isn't it? I mean, a lot of us think of, well, I know what's good for me, right? I mean, how many of you are like, I know exactly what's good. You give me a list of 10 things, and I'll write 10 things that will be good for me to get. And a lot of them are wrapped up in you getting what you want here now, aren't they? But look at what the good that God says is that we need. Look at verse 29. God has predestined or chosen us to be what? Conformed to the image of his son in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God the Holy Spirit is constantly interceding for us according to the triune God's perfect will. And what is God's will? that we be conformed to the image of Jesus, of God the Son. Or as 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's your gradual growing in righteousness. Our good isn't that we get what we want. In fact, I'm glad I don't get what I want most of the time. If I did, it would be a disaster. Kind of put this in perspective, if you have young children, which many of you do, try letting your one and a half or two-year-old make every decision in life for just half of a day and see how that goes. It's not going to go well. God gave us parents to keep us alive. You know, that's why God has called our what? Heavenly Father. In his providential power, God works all things out for his glory and thus for our good. And what is our good? Our good is Christ-like growth and maturity. I want you to see our good isn't what we always interpret as our good. Our good isn't worthy of some Instagram post, hashtag blessed. It's spiritual growth. And the great encouragement that God tells us, what he's doing, what we know with certainty, is that he, what does it say in verse 28? Works all things together for good. Now, to give you an example of this, I want you to turn to Job chapter 1. We're going to take Job as an example. Job chapter 1. Job gives us insight into how the spiritual world operates. It helps us see that God alone is God. 
and that Satan is not some rival power. Satan is not some rival authority to God. For in Job chapter 1, we see that Satan is God's devil. He has to go before God with the other angels at a set time. God then gives Satan permission to test Job. Satan is not the author of all things evil in this world. Satan begins to tempt. Satan is allowed to do these things, but he is not left completely unchecked. And Job's suffering is about as severe as they come. Look at Job chapter 1, verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters, that's Job's sons and daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. This doesn't mean that they were uh, having some sort of terrible drunken feast. It just probably is a time of celebration, maybe a birthday party. And there came a messenger to Job, verse 14, and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, verse 16 says, and that is the key to this whole passage. For while he was still speaking, there came another and said, Oh, the fire of God fell down from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that servant was yet speaking, there came another servant and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that servant was still speaking, the fourth servant with terrible news comes. There came another and said, Perhaps the worst news of all, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Literally all that Job has, except his health at this point. Total waste. Complete ruin. All of the good that Job had. All of the things Job could hashtag bless about. And yet here's Job's response, verse 20. Then Job arose. He rightly tore his robe, shaved his head. He's mourning, he's lamenting, and he fell on the ground and what? Worship. Worshipped? It's a broken man, a devastated man. He's literally lost everything he has, his whole family. Then we get a slice of Job's worship in verse 21, and it's incredible. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. This is Job's hashtag blessed. Blessed be God, even as I suffer horribly. And then in chapter 2, Job's own skin is struck with loathsome boils from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And the rest of the book is Job wrestling through how to think of such profound and difficult and terrible suffering. He has three unhelpful friends and one pretty good friend. 
But in all of it, even as God speaks to Job in the final chapters, Job never learns what we know with certainty, namely that God's providence is working. He trusts God because he knows God is good. But he doesn't know Romans 8, 28. That hasn't been revealed to him yet. He doesn't know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't know that. And God isn't just looking to bring good out of Job's bad situations. No, literally it says in Job chapter 1 that God allows this suffering, even purposes his suffering because it what gives God glory. And it's for Job's greatest good in some mysterious way. Another brief example, Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He languishes in prison for years after being falsely accused. And during all that time, Joseph has no idea why this is happening to him. He has no idea that any good might come of it. But if we are in prison, and we are in some foreign land or even in our own land, and we are put in prison unjustly, we know with certainty all things are going to work for our good. Joseph and Job couldn't fully grasp providence because God had yet to tell them his purpose. That all suffering, all these terrible trials, that it was all part of the providential purpose of the Lord. I mean, James 5 verse 11 says this about Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. You see, when you look at Job and you look at the sufferings of Job and you see all those terrible things, what do you look at? You look at the purpose of God. Gulp. And for the Christian, it is God's will, we've already been told, for us to suffer. But our great certain hope resides in Romans 8, 28, in providence. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that suffering is not meaningless. We know that suffering is designed by God to grow us. We know that suffering drives us to dependence on the only dependable God. But you also know, as you hear, it's cancer. As you lose your job again. As the bills loom large, as debt balloons, it's hard to feel like God is doing something good. Is it not? Sometimes when we are at our most confused, all we can do is listen to God and trust him. All we can do is lean upon the glorious truths revealed to us in scriptures, and we can lean into Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, when God tells us, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And as we sit and suffer and are challenged with all sorts of evil that is coming in our lives, all we can do is trust in God's character. 
He is a good father. He is faithful to do what he says he will and providentially work. We know that if we love God, all things work together for good. You see, we do not place a flimsy hope on positive attitudes, onto suffering. We place a solid, deeply rooted trust in God because he is faithful and he tells us providence is for us. But who is the us? Other than sufferers, is God working all things out for our good, of, for the good of every single human being? Who is God working all things for good for? Third insight into God's providence. Providence is for Christians. See, it is simply not true that all things work out for good for every single human. It is not true that eternal punishment in hell is their good. It is not true that God's just wrath poured out for sin is good for the sinner who rejects him. There's a sense in which God's providence and sovereignty is overall, even punishment, but providence experienced is only for the Christian. And look how Paul puts it in Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that for those who love God, he qualifies it. Those who love God, all things are called, uh, work out according to his purpose. And it's not like those who love God are a special subset of Christians. It's not like you have this large group of Christians and you've got this small subset who love God and that's who providence works for. No. Every single Christian is described as one who loves God by definition. Therefore, we know, our subpoint here, all Christians love God. You see, this is part of what it means to be adopted into God's eternal family. To know God as our heavenly Father is to affectionately desire Him above all else. To be children of God then is to be adopted into His eternal family and to know Him as God and Father. It means that we show the love of a son or a daughter. You see, to be a Christian isn't just to be afraid of hell. Say a prayer and get some fire assurance so you can get out of hell. To be a Christian isn't just to come to God because it gives you the greatest benefit of life, forgiveness, and heaven. That's not why you become a Christian. To be a Christian is to ultimately love God and live for his glory above your own, to desire God and his praise and his worship, to desire his glory above everything even above what I think is my highest good. To love God then is to be satisfied with suffering and strange providence. Not to enjoy it, as some masochist would, but to realize that in the midst of suffering, things that we don't understand, we can trust in the faithful nature of God because we know him. We love him as Father. To help you understand what it means to love God, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at a couple of verses in Deuteronomy. So go, go there with me. Deuteronomy 6. 
And we'll see in this passage that the starting point of loving God then can't be our own ability to muster up affection for God. I mean, think about it. That puts all the onus on you and your ability to, to, to love God and to kind of, yes, I now reached the point where I can truly love God. And actually, the, the love of God is something that comes when we know God and comes from something that God does in us. It has to be figured out based on who God is as he reveals himself. And so, as my college pastor used to always say, many sermons, this is a read your Bible more sermon. Because you need to know that if you want to know God and you want to love God, then you have to know God. And so, therefore, you need to look into his revealed word. And what's fascinating in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, we have one of the strongest commands in all of Scripture's that God gives us to love him. And yet before he gives us this command, he tells his people exactly who he is. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. He shows us that the one true God is Yahweh and God uh, and Yahweh alone is God. And Moses even teaches that the more we know God, the more we fear him. All the way back in verse 2, he says, chapter 6, verse 2, he's given these commandments. He's told us about who he is so that you may, verse 2, fear Yahweh your God, you and your son and your son's sons. So knowing God, fearing God leads then to loving God. And that's where we get to in verse 5. He says this command only in the context of knowing God and fearing God. And so verse 5 tells us, then you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. All that we are, all the physical, spiritual mind is to love God. Verse 6 continues. And these words, to love God and to know God, that I command you today, shall always be on your heart. Well, how is that to happen? Verse 7 tells us, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So at all times, you are to know God. You are to know his commands and law. You are to talk about those things. You are to fear God, and then you are to love God. They all work in concert. But also part of loving God is to clearly keep his commandments. Turn to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep his, the commandments and statutes of Yahweh, which I am commanding you today for your good. Providence is right here, isn't it? How, how do you live for your good? How does God work things out for your good? By loving God, by serving him, by worshiping him, by desiring him. And what does that mean? It means that you obey him. You desire to obey him. You walk with him and you follow his commands and his laws. 1 John 5, 3 says it very simple, simply, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. 
And then you look at your life and you're like, great. And I cannot keep the commandments perfectly. I just look back at my life this last week and I've got plenty of sin. I have a trail of broken relationships behind me and I hate the fact that I still sin. So what do you mean I have to love God by keeping his commandments? I can't keep his commandments. Doesn't this seem impossible to do on our own? How are we to know God well enough to fear him, to love him, to serve him, and to keep his commandments? I think that's the point. It's impossible without God doing something for us. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart. It just simply means he will give you a new heart. Yahweh your God, verse 6 says, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will what? Here's our word. Love God. So you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So yes, all Christians will love God because ultimately God does a work with our heart. We are not perfect in obedience. We are not perfect in all that we do, but we have a changed desire that is reflected in our lives. God, the Holy Spirit, regenerates us, means makes us new. He circumcises our hearts. Or in the words of Romans 8, he calls us to be God's children. And God's children love their father. Go to Romans 8.28 again. And we get a, another description of the Christian, another description for whom providence would, works. It's for those who love God, but it's also for those who are effectually called by God. And so we realize that all Christians are effectually called by God. Here in Romans 8, go back to verse 2. Earlier in Romans 8, we were already told this glorious truth. Romans 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You see, God, the Holy Spirit, does a miraculous work in us. Verse 15, and what does he say there? The middle of verse 15 says, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And now we see this truth in Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It is also for those who are called according to his purpose. And so what is this calling? There are two senses of God's calling used in the New Testament. And the same word is used for each, so context always determines there's a general gospel call that goes out to everyone who hears the gospel message. And then there's what we call the effectual calling of God that comes through the gospel to effectually change hearts, to do what verse 2 said. The Spirit gets a hold of us and changes us to do what verse 15 says and adopts us into the ch as children of God. That second sense is by far Paul's most common usage. And it's the sense of the word here. 
You see, all Christians are effectually called by God through the gospel and given a new heart so that we can respond in repentance and faith, in turning and trusting. God effectually gets a hold of our hearts and makes them new. And notice, what is the purpose of his calling at the end of verse 28? Whose purpose? It's for those who are called according to God's purpose, his purpose. This is not referred to everyone who has heard the general call of the gospel because some reject it. And for those who reject the gospel, all things do not work together for good. So God's purpose, God's good and glorious purpose is not for them. It is for the Christian It was effectually called by God. Now peek ahead to verse 30 and we see this glorious truth. If God has chosen us, verse 30, he predestined us, he also called us. That's that calling word. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's that sense of being declared righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He brings our salvation through to the end. You see, God's effectual call is how we know we are secure as his children. You believe, therefore you are called. What does Philippians 1, 6 say? God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. There's certainty there because God effectually began work. Because God effectually calls every Christian, God will continue to work in your life. And you see how that dovetails perfectly with providence, don't you? If you're God's child, if you're called by God, God will work in your life. Third insight, providence is for Christians. Now fourth Providence is God's intentional work. Providence is God's intentional work. See, playing Little League baseball and softball makes for some very happy accidents. I think my favorite moments on the ball field is when a kid catches their first fly ball. It goes something like this. The ball comes, they're not sure if they want to get under it because it's very scary and could hit them in the face. And so they stick their glove out, whichever right hand or left hand they are, and they go like that. And it somehow lands in their glove and it sticks and they get the ball in their glove and they start jumping up and down and get super excited, right? It's, it's, it's adorable, it's sweet, it's encouraging. Or maybe the, the hard hit line drives and the kid goes like this, closes his eyes, puts out his hands and look what I got, this is amazing. And everyone goes wild, it's so such a happy little accident. But that's not how we think of God's providence. Nothing about our lives is a happy little accident. Nor is it a tragic accident due to the impersonal effects of living in a sin-cursed world. You'll remember from Romans 8, verse 20, this isn't just a sin-cursed world. This is a God-cursed world for our sin. Romans 8, verse 20, right? Read it with me. For the whole creation was subjected to futility. That's the curse of sin. Not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it. Remember, Satan goes before God to get permission to do anything he does. God's sovereignty rules over everything. And thus, providence isn't God making lemonade out of life's lemons. God's sovereignty means he purposes the lemons of life for his glory and our good. You see the subtle difference? He's not reacting to some bad things that I, I'm going to make that good. No, he says, you know what? I'm going to give them some lemons. It's okay because I have something better in mind for them. 
through that trial. Notice the final couple words of Romans 8.28 again. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, this is God's salvation calling, but it also includes God's ongoing work in our lives. His purpose is his providential work. Remember when we don't know what to pray for as we ought, verse 26, and all we can muster is a groan? God, the Holy Spirit, prays for us, verse 27 tells us, according to the perfect will of God. God knows his purpose for our suffering. God knows his purpose for our trial because his sovereignty extends in all directions over the good and the bad. That's how we find comfort, that God is able to work all things for our good because providence is God's intentional work. Think of Joseph again. He was sold as a teenager into slavery by his brothers. A few years later, he was unjustly thrown into prison where he languished for over a decade. Miraculously, God brings him out of prison to become second in command of all of Egypt, only below Pharaoh. And God does all of this to preserve life in the midst of a famine. And that famine that threatens his family in Canaan so that those same brothers who hated him enough to kill him come to Egypt and look for food. And who is there to help them but Joseph, whom they didn't recognize? The whole point of that Joseph narrative is captured up in three texts. Genesis 45, 7, listen. Joseph says to his brothers, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Wait, I thought it was the brothers who sent him into slavery, right? But Joseph says, no, God sent Psalm 105, 16 and 17. When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he, God, had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So who sent the famine? God. Who sent Joseph down there through all those years and years, over a decade worth of hardships? God. And then Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says to his brothers, as for you, you meant it for evil but God meant it for good. See, the only way to make sense of God using evil for good is, to, is if God is absolutely sovereign over all. Only then can we say providence isn't God's quick fix for an out-of-control situation. Providence, we see in the Bible, is God's intentional work. As we close, let's listen to how Charles Spurgeon puts it. I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That the shaft from the hand of the winnower is steered as the stars uh, in their courses. The creeping of the aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of the devastating pestilence. The fall of leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. See, only by the hand of a fully sovereign God can providence be hopeful for the Christian. And so Spurgeon continues, everything in this world is working for some one great end. 
providence is like a rolling river rippling at the first, like a rill down the sides of the mountain, followed by minor streams till it rolls in the broad ocean of everlasting love, working for the good of the chosen people of God. So when we think of providence, We are not those who cower in the midst of suffering. We are not those who love the pleasures of this world more than God. We are those who are willing to give it up all for God because we know that we are safe in his hands. Providence points us to God's purposeful sovereignty and has rich implications and applications for our lives once we've gained these insights. As John Piper says, providence humbles human pride intensifies human worship, shatters human hopelessness, and puts steel in the spine of human courage, gladness in the groans of affliction, and love in the heart that sees no way forward. Let us then lean into our love for God, who is working according to his good and sovereign pleasure. And may providence be our new favorite word. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time of studying your word and looking into the glories of providence and what you have accomplished. Lord, as we now prepare our hearts to take of your supper, Lord, I pray that you would help us during this very important time to look back with great fondness at the cross, that we would be profoundly in awe of the sacrifice that Christ paid for us. Lord, that we would also then look forward to the day in which you return, for you tell us to continue to take of these of this supper until you come back. That we would also look up and recognize that because of what you accomplished on the cross, Lord, we have perfect access to you. Lord, that we would look within and that we would recognize that we need to come humbly before you today as the day that we first believed, confessing our sin and recognize that we have full and complete covering and forgiveness of sin in Christ. And may we also look around celebrating the great joy of belonging to your body, to a church family. For as we take Many partake of this one bread, so we are one body. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.